This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. The Lutheran Public Radio Choir with the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It speaks of recreating this bride by water and the word, a holy bride bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, C.F.W. Walther back in 1885 said, In the 14th place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the universal corruption of mankind is described in such a manner as to create the impression that even true believers are still under the spell of ruling sins and are sinning purposely, trying to guard that passage, the holiness of Christ's bride. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Will Whedon will join us for part 16 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Then in hour two, we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, The Great Commandment and Whose Son is the Christ, Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, will be our guest. Pastor Will Whedon is Assistant Pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. A joy to be with you. In this 18th thesis, this was back in 1885, it's almost like Walther had a crystal ball and could look forward 120 or 130 years to the current state of, of some Lutheran theology in the United States. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, the, what we call the sort of soft antinomian movement, if you will, is very much what he has his uh, guns trained on in this particular thesis. And he sees it as a danger, a temptation that any young pastor can easily fall into where he's just going to try to describe, well, look, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Every one of us fail. And yet then by seeing that, they give the impression that a person can still be a Christian 
and be under the power and influence of some dominating ruling sin in their life. And Walter says, "Eh, boys, we can't go there. He says, you'll observe that I'm speaking of the claim that the universal of corruption of mankind embraces living in dominant and willful sins on the part of believers. Of course, some believers are living in dominant and willful sins, but that the believer has made peace with the sin in his life and has gone over to that side and continues as a believer, Walter says, that's just not possible. That's an improper way of speaking or thinking about it. So he urges, when addressing a Christian congregation, you have to be careful not to speak as if also all Christians were living in shame and vice. Todd, I still frequent a certain space on the internet where this argument comes up all the time. I mean, you can count on certain pastors of not our branch of the Lutheran church to bring this up and say, but we're all sinners. We're all sinners anyway. So the gospel is Christ forgives all sin of all sinners. And it's like, okay, that's true. Christ has indeed forgiven the sins of the world, but are you ever to preach repentance? Are you ever to say to a person, you cannot continue to sin that grace may abound like St. Paul did? And the answer apparently is no, you can never say that to a person because we're all sinners anyway. So Walter really goes after this and he says, you guys need to make plain to your hearers in all your sermons that there are really only two goals at the end of this life, heaven and hell. There will be only two sentences which are pronounced on men. They're either going to end up in damnation or they're going to end up in eternal life. Accordingly, there are only two classes of men present in this human life right now. Those of the one class are headed directly for hell, and those of the other are headed straight for heaven. And he he, he goes to passages where Christ lays this out. The way broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and there's a whole bunch that enter into it because narrow is the gate, narrow the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. So he wants to stress this truth to Christians. You really, you have to choose which way you're going here because you cannot be walking toward God at the same time you're running away from him. You can't head both directions at once. So he turns to uh, several passages to sort of lay this out. First of all, Romans 6 verse 14, sin is not going to have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. And He adds, you know, what the apostle says in this text is that sin is not going to be able to dominate Christians. It's absolutely impossible that a person who is in a state of grace is being ruled by sin. He says, hey, a pilgrim traveling a lonely road can be attacked. If he's attacked by robbers on the road, he tries to get away at his first chance. He doesn't want to be overcome and slain. Christians are pilgrims through this world on their way to heaven, and the devil is a highway robber who seeks to assault them, and they go down before him because of their weakness, not because they meant to go down. To a true Christian, his fall is forgiven because he turns to God in daily repentance with tears or at least heartfelt sighings for pardon. If a person allows sin to rule him, it's just a sure sign he's not a Christian. He's just a hypocrite, no matter how pious he may pretend to be. Then he moves on from Romans 6 
to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then this beautiful verse, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So Walter adds, no one then who falls into the aforementioned sins and fails to repent of them, let me stress that, and fails to repent of them, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The Christian's repentance consists in this, that he desires to commit such sins no more. Whoever commits these sins intentionally, and by intentionally, remember, Walter means embraces them, says, I don't care whether God likes it or not, it's what I'm going to do. He's just going to have to deal with it. That kind of a response, he says, makes it clear you're not a Christian, but you're reprobate. You're not moved by the Spirit of God, but you're moved by the devil himself. He moves into 2 Peter 2, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again become entangled therein and overcome. Well, the latter end is worse than the beginning. It would have been better never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it's happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turned back to its own vomit and the pig has returned to wallowing in the mire. So he says, with this passage, we really need to confront our Calvinist brothers and sisters in particular, because they say that a person who's once obtained faith can never lose it. And he's like, well, the apostle here is speaking about people who were children of God, and they had a living knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and they'd been in a state of grace. So how then can anyone really say that a person who has been truly converted stays converted when, like Peter or David, they fall into some particular sin? He gives several other passages, which um, I'm, I'm just going to skip down. Uh, he, he, I'll just mention them. Romans 8, 13 and 14, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. I do want to comment on that. It's one of the epistles read during the church here. It goes like this. For this you know that no whoremonger or you know, immoral person, no unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no man deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. And he underlines this. Don't let anyone deceive you. And he says, this means don't listen to anyone who tells you contrary to this. Unbelievers will be damned for the reason that they live in sins like the ones he's listed above. So he says, consider then, if you want to live in the same sins, you will share their faith in perdition. This Paul asks the Ephesians to ponder. So he lays all this out beautifully from Scripture, and then he turns to a passage in the Lutheran Confessions, which we've already looked at in this series, but it's so important that it's, it's worth hearing it again. Let me read it to you. It's from the Small Card Articles, Part 3, Article 4, paragraphs 42 to 45. On the other hand, 
If certain sectarians were to arise, some of whom are perhaps already extant, and in the time of the insurrection of the peasants came under my own observation, holding that all those who had once received the Spirit or the forgiveness of sins or had become believers, even though they should afterwards sin, would still remain in the faith and that such sin would not harm them. And hence crying thus, do whatever you want. If you believe, it all amounts to nothing. Faith blots out all sins, they say. Besides, that if one sins after he received faith in the Spirit, well, then maybe he never really had faith of the Spirit to begin with. I have had before me heard and seen many such insane men, and I fear that in some such a devil is still remaining. It's therefore absolutely necessary to know and teach that when holy men, still having and feeling original sin and also daily repenting and striving with it, happen to fall into manifest sins, mortal sins, which everyone recognizes as such, as David into adultery, murder, blasphemy, that faith in the Holy Spirit has then departed from them. For the Holy Spirit does not permit sin to have dominion, to gain the upper hand so as to be accomplished, but represses and restrains it so that it must not do what it wishes. But if it does what it wishes, the Holy Spirit and faith were certainly not present. St. John says in his first epistle, 3 verse 9, whoever is born of God does not continue or does not practice sin, and he cannot practice sin. And yet it's also true when the same St. John says in his first epistle, chapter 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are just fooling ourselves, deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, you know, he lays it out there very beautifully from the confessions, the point that he's, he wants this thesis to drive home to his young hearers. Just to put a uh, cap on that with about a minute before we take our break, he's really saying that while the Christian may sin, the Christian lives in daily repentance, and someone who does not live in daily repentance cannot claim to be a Christian. Is exactly. Is that simple? That is that simple. It's really that simple. It's like repentance is not something you leave behind at the beginning of your Christian life. It's something that accompanies a Christian every day of their life. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We'll go on to the next evening lecture and the next thesis as we distinguish between law and gospel on this Monday, the 23rd of October. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. 
To find a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. An oasis in the desert of pop American Christianity. You're listening to Issues Etc. What is better than a vacation to the emerald water and white sand of Destin, Florida? A Caribbean-caliber Gulf Coast destination without international travel hassles. What is better is receiving confessional word and sacrament ministry at Grace Lutheran Church while on vacation to the emerald water and white sand of Destin, Florida. Divine service on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and on Advent and Lent Wednesdays at 6 p.m. gracedestin.org. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. Back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever is our guest. It's part 16 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Will, he begins his 31st evening lecture bemoaning the fact that there are many people, he says, in Christendom, baptized and unbaptized, who do not know what sin is. Why does he go there? Well, because there's a temptation to actually say, well, a sin is a sin is a sin and leave it there. And when you do that, you don't then take sin very seriously. And that was the thing he was really griping about was the way that people treated sin like just the satisfying of a worldly appetite or, you know, your your bodily appetite it would be a sin. He's like, no, not at all. It's actually something very distinct. So he lays out this thesis that returns to something we'd already talked about, but he goes into a very important point about it here. Thesis number 19 says, in the 15th place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher speaks of certain sins as if they are not damnable, but venial in nature. Now, you can't be a Lutheran and not have the distinction between mortal and venial sin. It's taught very clearly in the Lutheran confessions in a number of places, but it's a gross misunderstanding to think that a certain sin is venial. That is, it's not going to damn you in and of itself. This is one of the big ahas Luther had, if you remember in the uh, Heidelberg disputation, right? There is no such thing as a sin that cannot bring you to hell. Every last one of them by rights could bring you there. And that what makes a sin be venial is not the sin itself, but how a person in faith, repents of it, turns to Jesus, and claims his blood for the forgiveness of that sin. That's what makes a sin be venial in the eyes of God. So he's going to work his way through it. So Walter here, we've already seen that a distinction must be made between mortal and venial sins. A person failing to make this distinction does not rightly divide the law and the gospel. But the distinction between these two kinds of sin must be made with great care. It must be clearly shown that the distinction is made 
for the purpose of proving that certain sins expel the Holy Ghost from the believer. When the Holy Spirit is driven out, faith too is ejected, for no one can come to faith or retain faith without the Holy Spirit. Sins which expel the Holy Spirit and bring on spiritual death are therefore called mortal sins. Anyone who has been a Christian will readily perceive when the Holy Spirit is departed from him by his inability to offer up childlike prayers to God and to resist sin stoutly and bravely as he used to. He'll feel as if he'd become chained to sin like a slave. It's a good thing if he has at least the knowledge of this condition, for thus he may be brought back to God. But while this condition endures, he's just not in communion with God. Venial sins are terms such as Christians commit without forfeiting the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They're sins of weakness or of rashness. Frequently, they're called the daily sins of Christians. I mean, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer and from the word daily bread, and it's clear he intended us to pray this thing every day. And so every day, Christians pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We're not pretending that we are without sin. So, While inculcating this distinction upon our hearers, we must be scrupulously careful not to create the notion in them that venial sins are sins about which a person need not be greatly concerned and for which he doesn't have to ask forgiveness. A preacher who leads his hearers to entertain this view becomes the cause of their perdition. He makes them carnally secure and drives the fear of God from their hearts. Ouch. That is one powerful charge that he lays there. So he says, that's not the true evangelical way of preaching about these sins, nor is it in general a true evangelical notion that only he is a real evangelical preacher who does not preach the law a great deal. Both law and the gospel have to be preached, the one in its sternness, the other in its sweetness. A preacher who doesn't preach both doesn't deserve the name of being an evangelical minister, but is a false leader and is sowing the gospel as if he were casting wheat into the ocean where no crop can be raised. It happens only too often that preachers, when speaking of the distinction between venial and mortal sins, create the impression that to Christians, venial sins are matters over which they need not worry. Since all are sinners and no one ever gets rid of sin entirely, there's no reason why one should feel disturbed because of these sins. A lot of that kind of talk is really awful and ungodly. He turns to uh, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot, not one tittle, shall in any wise pass from the law until it is fulfilled. So whoever breaks one of these commandments, the least of them, and teaches men to do that, he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, that one's going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Walter comments on that. This is one of the most terrifying sayings in the Bible. The Lord does not say he shall be the least, but shall be called the least. And the least here means the most reprobate or the one whom God does not acknowledge as his own. That will be the sentence passed on him in the kingdom of God and Christ. Therefore, you should with trembling 
approach the task of preaching both the gospel and the law. Do not speak of one jot of the law, of one of the so-called least commandments, as of something about which a Christian does not need to be greatly concerned. He said, a true Christian manifests himself as a person who fears to commit a single sin. And the Lord also speaks of the person who leads people astray, who teach men to do that. He says, bad enough when you do it on your own part and you disregard and lead a careless life, but when you teach other people your lax views, he says, then you're leading them to perdition by the very way that you're preaching. He says, this is kind of awkward because Luther had a different translation than the one in our common English versions, but Psalm 56 verse 7, Luther had, what evil we do is already forgiven. In other words, don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. God's going to forgive it all. And he says, that's the slogan of the wicked, just as it is the easygoing way of unconverted people to speak of their iniquities like this. Well, I can easily make amends and grass will soon grow over it. Walter says, no, grass will grow over nothing for which forgiveness has not been asked of God. He turns to another passage in Matthew 12, verse 36, where our Lord says, I tell you, every idle word that people speak, they're going to have to give an account of on the day of judgment. He says, so here you got a concrete example. We're shown in this text how abominable it is to speak of sins which are in themselves venial and are automatically remitted because God doesn't regard them as being all that great. He says, people who speak like that, they make the holy and righteous God like the feeble old man Eli who saw his son sin and merely said, no, my sons, this is not wise. You know, 1 Samuel 2, 24, thinking that that by saying that he'd done his whole duty. He says, look, God is love, of course. He's also holiness and he is righteousness. And to the person who rises up against him, God becomes a terrifying fire and in his fiery wrath pursues the sinner to the lowest hell. Let men of the world ridicule and scorn this teaching, but they will have to pay dearly for their laughter, like the men of Sodom did in Genesis 19. Any evil word for which a sinner is tried on the day of judgment is sufficient for his condemnation. Let me say that just one more time, right? (laughs) Any evil word that a sinner utters is sufficient for his damnation, his condemnation. That is a, a word from Jesus that's designed to put fear and trembling in us because we tend to excuse the words that we speak as being the least of all the sins of our life. Well, Jesus makes it clear, hey, uh, they're not little. And for them, of course, he would also have to die. And then the passage that really nails this whole thing down is James chapter 2, verse 10. So anyone who keeps the whole law and fails at one point, becomes guilty of it all. So according to this text, if a person had kept, say, 999 of the thousand commandments, he would still be guilty of the whole law. That applies to every one of the so-called venial sins. That means that a Christian must clearly understand this fact that Even these little sins that we think of as not being so bad, 
in the eyes of God, they are enough to drag us down to hell. What constitutes a person as a Christian is this believing knowledge that he is in the first place a miserable accused sinner who would be lost forever if Christ had not died for him, and that in the second place, Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity and also true man born of the Virgin Mary, has redeemed him, a lost and condemned creature, and purchased and won him from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil. A Christian must regard himself as a lost and condemned sinner on his own, or all this talk about faith, Walter says, just so much babble. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 16 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We'll go on to the 20th thesis in the 16th place. The Word of God is not rightly divided when a person's salvation is made to depend on his associations with the visible Orthodox Church and when salvation is denied to every person who errs in any article of faith. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Almost Persuaded, Paul Sails for Rome, A Fateful Decision, Paul's I Told You So, and Approaching Land. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Gospels report to Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Concordia Lutheran, Jackson, Tennessee. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Sherman, Illinois. Emmanuel Lutheran, Eagle, Nebraska. Messiah Lutheran, Danville, California. Our Savior Lutheran, North Royalton, Ohio, Redeemer Lutheran, Lincoln, Nebraska, St. John Lutheran, Napoleon, Ohio, St. Paul Lutheran, Milford Center, Ohio, Trinity Lutheran, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Zion Lutheran, St. Charles, Missouri. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. 
Just go to issuesetc.org, click support, donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Attending church is extremely important to mental health. Churches where people hear God's word through the pastor that their sins are forgiven. They receive the sacrament. They are nourished in their faith by the company of fellow believers and more prosaically, but important to mental health. The church is full of friendly people, the body of Christ. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. It's at our website, issuesetc.org. Or call Concordia Publishing House and order Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. It's part 16 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. What does Walther have to say in the 20th thesis here? This one begins with actually a long history of what they've just come out of, what Christianity has just come out of experiencing, and it helps explain the nature of why the need for this thesis arose. So he mentions that after rationalism had pretty much wrecked the church, when everybody kind of thought, well, I guess the church is more or less just dead and moribund right now, well, a confessional revival began. There was a fellow, a, a pastor named Klaus Harms, and in the year— 1817, he begins a real confessional revival. He says, your, your purpose is to make the poor handmaid, the Lutheran church, rich by a marriage to the Reformed, he means. And he says, don't perform it over Luther's grave. Life's going to come back into his bones, and then woe to you. Well, sort of like did happen. A confessional revival began, and people began taking very seriously the big questions of truth. And Walter's like, those were really beautiful, wonderful, glorious days at the beginning of the 19th century. It's interesting, Todd. It also shows up sort of in hymnody. The church doesn't have a lot of hymns about herself before the 19th century. But in the 19th century, everybody's asking the big question about what's the church? What's the church? And so you've got the start of the confessional revival in Germany. And in England, you've got the Tractarian movement going on. You've got people that begin to switch confessions like Newman heading from Anglicanism into Rome. This whole time of sifting, if you will, in the church was uh, what Walter was specifically dealing with. And there's a really insidious argument that happens where the Lutherans, they didn't want to have some sort of an inferiority complex. So if Rome or the Orthodox are saying that they are the alone saving church, and it's hard for us to picture in these days of Vatican II that they say that they actually did say that, right? Very clearly. When that's being said, the Lutherans finally sort of said, well, we're the true visible church on earth. And they meant by that, what some of these Lutherans in Germany were meaning was, we're the true Orthodox church that you need to be affiliated with to be saved. And Walter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a shame that the confessional revival ended up here because that was a false statement and it's wrong. And he warns his um, young pastors there to beware of this. I remember we used to have a, a really wonderful godly member in our church. Her name was Alice, Alice Severs. And Alice 
she told me when she was a little kid, she just would, you know, she'd be crying for her, her, her cousins who were in the Reformed Church because they weren't going to go to heaven. It was so sad. And Walter's like, this is the kind of idea we got to wash out of our people entirely. If we give them the impression that by their association with the Lutheran Church as the alone saving church, they're going to make it into heaven, we've given them a totally false impression. And the same thing when they're dealing with the temptations to switch to other churches that will always purport themselves to be the true visible church of Christ here on earth, we have to be able to come back with a response that the church is not to be found in a given fellowship of people. Wherever the word of God is doing its work, proclaiming Jesus Christ and his salvation, the Holy Spirit is busy connecting hearts to the Savior. And wherever that's happening, even if there's error happening right there with it, we still see and recognize the church of Jesus Christ is there. And we never want to in any way diminish that truth that there are Christians in all of these different churches where the word of God is active. That's what he's trying to get at in this this thesis. Your salvation as a Christian does not hang on you having guessed the correct answer to which is the true visible church of Christ here on this earth. He turns to demonstrate this, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints, and you're members of the household of God, and you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone on whom the whole building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Walter makes it clear there, no one's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets who doesn't believingly cling to their word. Hence, no one is a member of the church who's without living faith. He notes the Savior calls himself the bridegroom, So let the one who is betrothed to Christ not then claim that they're not a member of the church just because they're not a member of some right orthodox believing body. But he says again, Christ is called the head of the church. So only a person can be a member of the church into whom there flows from Christ, the head, light and life and strength and grace. And he says, whoever doesn't have this real inner spiritual connection with Christ doesn't have Christ for a head. Whoever is his own ruler and isn't governed by Christ does not belong to the church. Only that person is a member of the church who experiences the constant outflowing of energy from Christ, the head of the church. Similarly, when he calls the church his flock, remember he describes the church as those who hear my voice. That's very clear. And when he tells the parable, he describes the, the, in the true church of Christ, you've got wheat and tares growing. His picture is very much, he states that the field is the world. In this world, what you can see in this world, you're always going to have believers and unbelievers mixed, mashed together. That's going to be the fact of it. And he says the apology to the Augsburg Confession really emphasizes this fact. The Savior likens his church to a field in which wheat and tares grow together, to a net in which good and bad fish are caught, to a marriage feast in which foolish virgins come with others, and to which, according in another parable, one gained entrance who was not dressed in the proper wedding attire. He says, by means of all these parables, 
Jesus doesn't mean to describe the essence of the church, but its outward form as it appears in this world, its lot among men in this world. It's really only composed of good sheep, only of regenerate persons. Still, it never presents itself in the form of a congregation that's made up of none but true Christians. In its visible form, the church can never purge itself of hypocrites and ungodly persons who will inevitably, invariably find their way into it. So you can see people going to church, but you can't see whether or not they belong to the church proper, to the invisible church that's constituted by the gift of faith in people's hearts, the gift from the Spirit, binding them in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. No man, only God alone knows who really is in the church. But if he says you make a person's salvation dependent on getting the membership right and being in communion with the right visible Orthodox church, you're throwing overboard the doctrine of justification by faith. Faith has been obtained for people before they join the Lutheran church. It's a fatal mistake to think that Luther, before becoming a Lutheran, didn't have the right faith. That's not true. Though we esteem our church highly, may this abominable fanatical notion be far from us that the Lutheran church is the only saving church. The true church extends through the world, and you can find it in all the sects. It's not merely an external organism with peculiar arrangements on which a person must adapt himself in order to become a member of the church. Anyone who believes in Jesus and is a member of his spiritual body, is a member of the church. This church, moreover, is never divided. Although its members are separated from one another by space and time, this church is always one. He he really wants to, to stress this whole thing and at the same time wants to warn off from the danger of thinking, oh, well, then it doesn't really matter if I have, you know, if my church teaches something false. He's like, no, if you really love Christ, you're going to care very much if your church teaches only what's true and in accord with the word of God. And you're going to seek that church, which teaches and practices that way. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. He hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We will move on to the 33rd evening lecture and its attendant thesis, Thesis 21, next. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today, is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You're listening to Issues Etc. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 16 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. In this 23rd evening lecture, some time has passed. And uh, he, he has to deal with the fact that some of his audience, at least, have not heard the 25 preceding theses from him. But he, got, he has to finish five more. Yeah. So that's, that's a great point. He, we've skipped from June in 1885 to September 4th in 1885. So the, the previous series, you know, it's been a while since even the the other students who heard all the theses have been together. So he's going to take time to help them remember everything he's taught, and he's got to bring the new guys up to speed. He, he does that too. This particular concern um, of this thesis, though, is one that that's very pertinent in our own day. Our saint friend, uh, Paul McKean, used to uh, say that th- th- there's this temptation to preach these days that that runs like the outline is, you're a sinner, God's got forgiveness for you because of what Christ did for you on the cross, so come and take communion. <laughs> he, he used to rag on that nonstop. He was like, there's something uh, missing there, and the something missing is what Walter's getting at in this thesis. In the 17th place, the Word of God is not rightly divided. When men are taught that the sacraments produce salutary effects ex opere operato, I think we could almost just translate that automatically just by using them. That is by the mere outwards performance of the sacramental act. In other words, baptism saves and communion saves just because you received it or participate in it. And he needs to show that's actually not what our church has ever taught or believed because that's not what the Word of God actually teaches. In all of the sacraments, what you have is God reaching a promise to the person who receives them, and the promise itself must be believed. That's just so clear that you couldn't do much more harm than by telling people that it's their outward act of receiving the sacrament that really saves them, rather than their trust in the promise God's laying on them there in that act. Big, big difference. And this is why when people say, well, 
I thought it said that I, I only had to believe, and Lutherans will say, yes, you do only have to believe. So believe the promise God makes you in your baptism. Believe the promise he makes you in the holy absolution. Believe the promise he makes you when you receive his body and blood. Because he had to review everything in this lecture, Todd, he, he barely starts in the, the, the first one. And so the 34th evening lecture on September 11th, a week later in 1885, he gets around to the meat of what this thesis is really all about. And he just points to how over and over again, the sacraments as visible words have promises attached to them, which must be believed. For example, you have Christ say, go and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. Similarly, you have the passage in Galatians 3 talking about baptism. You are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Walter comments, so this text shows that Christ is put on in baptism only if a person believes. An unbeliever who receives baptism does not put on Christ, but keeps on the spotted garment of his sinful flesh. And then, of course, in the supper itself, he turns to the words of institution and he highlights the most important words of all. The temptation, I think, is for people to hear the most important words as, this is my body and this is my blood. But the most important words are, given for you, shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. So Walter specifically accents that. Um, It's plain that what he means to say is, The point of chief importance is that you believe that this body was given for you and that this blood was shed for you for the remission of your sins. That's what you must believe if you wish to derive the real blessing from this heavenly feast. And he says, by the additional remarks, do this in remembrance of me. Christ means to say, do it in faith. Surely he does not mean to say, Think of me when you partake of my body and blood. Don't forget me altogether. Whoever thinks that Christ merely admonished his disciples not to consign him to oblivion obviously does not know the Savior. The true remembrance of Christ consists in the believing reflection of the communicant. This is the body he gave for me. This is the blood He poured out for me so that my sins could be forgiven. And that's what gives me the confidence then to approach him at his altar. He says, if you imagine that by going to communion, you've once again done your duty and that God's going to regard your performance. He says, well, then you're going to communion is a damnable act and it will lead you into eternal perdition. He says, what really should urge a person to go to communion is the promise of grace, which God has attached to the visible sign of this sacrament. So he's like, people in the Lutheran church, yes, we hold the sacraments in the highest terms, the highest respect. And there's no question that the fanatics, by which he would mean any of the Protestants who disagree with us about what Scripture says about the sacraments, they're disgusted with our stand on it. He says, 
But the Lutheran Church regards the holy sacraments as the most precious, glorious, sacred treasures on earth and is firmly convinced that God is not a miserable master of ceremonies who decrees rites that we're to observe when receiving a person into our communion. Christianity, he says, is no Masonic society. When God commands a sacramental act, he commands something upon which our salvation depends. But at no time has the Lutheran Church asserted that men are saved merely by the external use of the sacraments. That is a teaching against which our church has always, across the centuries, raised its protest. It's always been condemned and rejected. Baptism, according to Lutheran teaching, is not regeneration itself. Baptism affects regeneration. It produces it. It's a means of regeneration. And uh, then he's goes through a number of places in the uh, uh, the Lutheran confessions that point to this same thing, that when we're dealing with the sacraments, the principal thing is that we hear and trust the promise which God attaches to the action and trust that promise, and that is the salutary use of every sacrament. He ends that lecture and that subject by saying, when a person has fallen from his faith, and baptismal grace, we do not tell him to construct a new ship for himself in which to continue his voyage to heaven, but to return to his faith in baptism, which is a covenant that remains unshaken because God does not cancel his word of promise, which he has pledged to the baptized. With about a minute, why does he end on that note? Well, he's pulling it from the large catechism, right? And the picture is yeah, you know, if you fall out of the ship, which is holy baptism, carrying you to the heavenly harbor, he says, the solution is not to try to make a second ship. The solution is swim back and get on the ship. Hold tight to it till you're pulled back in. And so he says, as long as we live in this life, we always have access to the grace of God that was promised to us in our baptism. We need to return to it, cling to it, hold it tight, and in that faith, experience the blessings that it can be and will deliver to us most surely on the last day. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. In hour two of Issues Etc., we're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary to Matthew 22, the great commandment and the question, whose son is the Christ? Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. The grace of God, the church's music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church that is. 
5218 Neosho Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.